brings me straight into our, our first speaker. I mentioned household names earlier. And as household names go, I don't think it gets much uh, bigger than Jeremy Maggs. <laughs> uh, Mr. Jeremy Maggs is certainly well known to all of us. Um, so I'm not going to spend a lot of time to introduce him. I'm just going to try and hand the floor over to him as quickly as possible. Jeremy, thank you very much for being here today. We look forward to hearing what you have to say. Thank you. It's excellent. Thank you very much indeed. And uh, thanks for calling me or having a household name. My father, God bless him, he's 92 years old. And uh, he still says to me that uh, he'd like me to get a proper job at some point. I've been in the broadcasting industry for, uh, for about 30 years. And it still worries him that I'm in the entertainment business. Uh, thank, thank you very much as well for pointing out the emergency exits. Um, I know that Mango are recruiting new uh, uh, cabin staff at the moment. So if you, need to, uh, if, you need to, uh, if you need to find a job there, that's a good thing. Folks, thank you very much indeed. And uh, it's really nice to talk to you. Um, just for one reason, really, is I spend most of my life... Um, uh, either behind a teleprompter or, or behind a radio microphone, and it's actually really nice to engage with an audience uh, and look at them in the whites of their eyes, so to speak. I also want to say that I'm always very uncomfortable about uh, talking uh, in front of, of a live audience because I've had some uh, very difficult experiences before with microphones. Um, I, I'm always very uncomfortable when I have to wear one of these microphones because many years ago um, I, I hosted a, a program on television uh, in which I gave away preposterous amounts of money. And I re recall to this day, and this was about 10, 15 years ago, uh, we, we, had, we had shot the program, um, and we were at the halfway point, and um, I was wearing one of these microphones. Um, the lunch that we'd had before was a particularly fine uh, vindaloo curry. And um, I think you know where the story is going. Um, so I was, uh, I was sitting, uh, and we were about to go into a commercial break, and I said to the floor manager, Brent, would you mind? I just need to leave the room for a moment, leave the studio. And he said, um, absolutely fine, Jeremy. And, uh, you know, when a man's got to go, a man's got to go. So I went um, off, and I'm not going to flesh out on that particular side of the story. Um, suffice it to say that when I got back into this large cavernous studio from where I was working... <clears throat> Uh, the audience was maybe double the size of the audience here, and I was given this tumultuous round of applause. And I thought, hey, I'm a household name, but they weren't applauding me for that, let me tell you, uh, because the person who was in charge of the microphone had forgotten to drop the fader. Work out the rest for yourself, everybody. Okay. There's another story. I work on, uh, on ENCA, the television news channel. On the night before, or on the night that we launched the, the station itself, uh, every night I sit behind a, a very large anchor desk. It's a glass desk, uh, and it is, uh, it is open in the front. And uh, if, you, if you watch the channel, you should have a look at it sometime. And um, I remember on the very first night, uh, again, wearing one of these pesky lapel mics, as we call them in the business, um, I, was, uh, I was broadcasting, and the battery on the mic went, uh, went, uh, went dead. And um, I was doing my best because there's always a backup that you have on your lapel. And uh, the next minute I looked down and there was a person, a sound engineer, with his head between my legs. This is not funny. Uh, with his head between my legs and he had his arms around my waist. 
and uh, he was trying to change the battery on the belt on the, on the back of the trousers. Um, but what he didn't know and what I didn't know is that as he was doing that, remember I said it was a glass desk, as he was doing that, his head was moving up and down. <laughs> Again, it's not funny, ma'am. Uh, because, and I think if you look on the deep recesses of YouTube, uh, you, will, you will find that particular clip. Just to get serious for a moment, folks, as I said, I've been in this business of broadcasting for 25 years. While I was sitting waiting for the introduction, I've just worked out that in that time, I've done well over 15,000 interviews uh, with business leaders, with politicians. I have interviewed everybody from, uh, from Tony Blair to Nelson Mandela and everybody in between. And uh, I'm, I'm not an expert in politics, but the one thing that I have got, and this does please my 92-year-old father, is that I, I, I'm fairly porous. I'm, I'm like a sponge. I'm, I'm, able to, uh, I'm able to gather as much information as possible. And I've been asked today to, to talk to you about um, where we are with about 50-odd days to go before the uh, August 3 election, which is being touted as possibly the most important election that uh, this country has had uh, in its recent history. So I thought the best thing to do um, would be to take you back uh, to the 24th of September last year. And I have come up with something called the Bry Index. But before we do that, let me tell you why I have decided to settle this talk around cooked meat and fire. Because on the last National Bry Day, on the uh, 24th of September last year, over 16 million people took part in a conversation over burning coals and debated the nation. Uh, I know that uh, you're all in the business of statistics, so let me share a few statistics with you. Um, of that number, 35% were male, 30% uh, were female. I'm not sure what came in between that. But more interestingly, um, the most number of briars was uh, the Western Cape with 53%, Bloemfontein at 33%, Durban 26%, the Eastern Cape 13%, and Gauteng 32%. It tells me two things. One is that obviously people in the Western Cape can afford meat more than we can uh, in, 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 in Gauteng, and also that maybe the weather on that day was a particularly better than in other parts of the world. But on that day, on that weekend, I also worked out that there were more people brying in South Africa and debating and discussing the state of the nation than there were if then uh, people actually watching, reading, or listening to the news. So I thought that might be a very good starting point to have a look at what the, uh, at what the, at the, what the panoply was of, uh, of, of the state of South Africa before the August 3rd election. So what I did was I, um, I spoke to a friend of mine who runs a small research company, and on the back of an omnibus survey, I asked him, please, to ask the simple question is, what is disturbing South Africans of all races, of all genders, across the swathe? What are we concerned about ahead of the August uh, 3 poll? And I think the discourse uh, that is happening around that, uh, around that bribe fire and what we put into that survey uh, gets, uh, uh, gives you a very good idea of where we stand in 2016. So I think the best place to start is I want to have a look at perceptions, if we can, first of all. And I want to give you a sense of the reality that we are dealing with in South Africa right now. In other words, what we are thinking about in South Africa. Uh, 
The one thing that is troubling us more than anything else is the continuing crime rate. The latest statistics that have been put up by the Institute for Security Studies say that we have the ninth highest murder rate in the world. We are the second in Africa behind Lesotho. Go and figure that one out yourself. We are the 116th happiest country in the world. We're not a happy nation. I will get to that a little bit later on. By the way, the happiest country in the world, does anybody know? It's Denmark, followed by Switzerland, and then Iceland. So if you're looking for a little bit of happiness and light and sunshine in your life, I suggest you move to one of those three countries. The other perception that we have in this country is we live, ladies and gentlemen, in a world of conspiracy. We have become conspiracy central, particularly in the run-up to this uh, August the 3rd poll. And I want to pull out a couple of the conspiracy theories that every single night I deal with on television. And I'm doing substantive interviews with people on these conspiracy theories. The first thing is, let me take you back uh, to the Fees Must Fall uh, movement, the protests uh, towards the end of last year. The overriding conspiracy theory that exists right now and has become central to the discourse in this country is that it was driven by white supremacists. And that was a view that was offered on the record to me in an interview by the ANC Youth League. Conspiracy theory number one. Conspiracy theory number two, everybody. The West is plotting continually to assassinate Jacob Zuma. That came, again, from the ANC, a senior member within the province's party. Now, that is chapter and verse. It's a belief that is being held. It's a conspiracy theory. Number three, the public protector, Tuli Madonsela, I will get to her a little bit later on in this conversation, is a CIA spy. Conspiracy theory number three. The CIA is patently very busy in South Africa because, again, conspiracy theory number four is that uh, all opposition parties, including the economic freedom fighters, are children uh, of, uh, of the, uh, the Central Intelligence Agency. Service delivery, that's conspiracy theory number five, conspiracy theory number six, service delivery protests are continually driven by a third force. And that is the environment, everybody, that we're living in at the moment. It is not healthy, it is not good, and it misinforms the more important discourse that we should be having in this country. But what we tend to do, I think, is against that backdrop of worry, fear, uncertainty, and conspiracy, what we do is we adopt a short-term mentality. We tend to look at everything through a very narrow prism, and we say to ourselves uh, that everything is bad uh, in the last couple of years, that it was absolutely perfect a few years before that. And what we do is we look back with fondness, we look back with uh, nostalgia, we look back with some reflective, uh, uh, reflective enjoyment. Uh, we hanker to the time of, of Nelson Mandela, of, of, of lifting trophies, of Madiba shirts, the rainbow nation, the winning smile, a sense of cohesion. The economy at that point uh, tended to be in, or we thought it was in good shape. But I also want you to consider that the problems that we have in this country, or as uh, many of our politicians like to say across this way, the challenges that we have in this country um, are, are deep-rooted. And uh, the Rainbow Nation itself certainly wasn't that. It was a very different picture. I want to list to you very quickly, again, under the heading of perception, about um, some of the problems that existed way back. First of all, the AIDS pandemic post-1994 was largely being ignored. We are still dealing with that problem now. Improvement has been made, but we still deal with it. 
on the, uh, on the, on the, on the, uh, on the Gini index, the wealth gap only lowered during that, those halcyon days of the, of the, uh, of the mid and uh, early 1990s by three points before climbing again. We still remain among the most disparate nations in the world when it comes to, to the wealth gap. The murder rate, in spite of what people told you, never really came down. Again, perceptions of what it was like. Um, assets like wealth and land could have been more equitably and radically redistributed. Something, again, that we ignored because we were lifting trophies and we were smiling and trying to build this rainbow nation. A more vigorous industrial policy might have been introduced. Small business could have been given more committed support. Uh, the apartheid structure of cities could have been more urgently addressed. These are all issues, folks, that people were not addressing in the, uh, in, in the mid and, and early 90s. There were poorly conceived reforms in basic education. We live with that specter each and every day. Poor design of privatization. Wholesale deconstruction of the civil service and local authorities, that didn't happen properly. A TRC, as noble as the intention was, there was too hurry to get everything in a box and for us uh, to move on. The inability to handle the race problem, I'm going to get to that in just a moment. Poor governance leading to a fertile ground for corruption. One of the single biggest problems that we're dealing with in this country. Folks, I would say to you that all those years ago, we should have seen it coming. Now, let's look at the scope, let's look at the environment, let's look at the atmosphere that we work in and that we're dealing with in, uh, in 2016. And uh, racial intolerance, I would suggest to you, remains South Africa's most stubborn headache. I want to take you back to an interview with this person that I did a couple of months ago. Um, in which she had made this appalling statement, which flared up not only in South Africa but around the world. When I interviewed her 48 hours later, after uh, posting that on Facebook, I found her to be incoherent, I found her to be silly, ignorant, she could still see no wrong, she was unrepentant in spite of saying so, and uh, the one telling remark that came from my interview with her, and it, I shudder, when I stand up and say this to you, uh, Mr. Mags, I really like blacks. They're so sweet. Deal with it, everybody. That's the reality that we're living with in South Africa at the moment. Let me get a little bit more serious in terms of statistics for you. The South African Human Rights Commission uh, says that allegations of racism, allegations of racism in this country make up 80% of the over 1,000 human rights complaints that it receives annually on average. Now, if you haven't decided either to move to Denmark, Iceland, or Switzerland, one place you don't want to go to if you're concerned about racial intolerance, intolerance is in Pumalanga. Because of that 80%, around 74% of complaints come from Mpumalanga. It has the highest number of racism complaints in this country. It's followed by the Free State, 69%, followed by the Northwest Province at 55%. The general takeout here, ladies and gentlemen, is that the law has to be more vigorously applied and anti-racism programs have had to be adopted with more energy and with more understanding within the corporate workplace. So that's perception, those are perceptions. This is uh, scope number one in terms of the landscape that exists in South Africa uh, before the election. So that's the racism issue that we're dealing with. Let's talk, let's talk about the next issue, and that's uh, President Zuma. I want to recount a story to you about a person called Mandy Rousseau, uh, who was a journalist on City Press, 
who uncovered the entire Nkandla scandal. It's an interesting story. Uh, she was uh, an investigative reporter. She was on holiday. She was on, uh, uh, on a hiking holiday in uh, northern KwaZulu-Natal. And she came upon this place. And out of nowhere, this, uh, this El Dorado uh, sprung up, and it was in Kandla. And all she did was she started speaking or started asking questions like a good interrogative investigative journalist. And from that came South Africa's biggest scandal. Sadly, she has passed on. Uh, she died a couple of years later after this uh, story started to, become, uh, started to become entrenched. But it has become our Watergate. It has become the scandal that simply won't leave South Africa. It's become an emblem of what is wrong with this country. It's also become an emblem of what is wrong with the Jacob Zuma um, presidency. It signifies what is wrong in the very broadest sense as far as our society is concerned. It's not just about a president defying the public protector. It's not about a president who acted in a manner that's inconsistent with the Constitution, and you know all of that anyway because you've been following the story closely. It's also uh, an, an ele electoral representatives, people in Parliament, choosing to ignore the interests of the public, particularly the poorest of the poor. The ANC itself has become severely compromised by this, and people have, their, for their own reasons, have found it necessary to continue to defend President Zuma. Every time I interview a politician uh, within the ruling party, and it segues back to the whole issue as far as Nkandla is concerned, the walls come up, and it has become an indefensible defense as far as I'm concerned. And the one thing I would suggest that we need to do in this country, if we're going to move on from this, is we have to disavow a culture of uh, political impunity. The next issue that's become a riding issue in South Africa is this. The very latest on this is uh, the mining minister, Mosibenzi Zwani, is now proposing uh, that the state itself form its own bank in order to help the Gupta family because the Gupta family is unable to get financial assistance anymore from the commercial banks, as you well know. It's absolutely outrageous. They're influencing President Zuma on the nuclear deal, among a whole lot of, of, of other issues as well. And it's quite interesting that the parlance of this country, uh, or the word uh, state capture, the word state capture, have now become part of the parlance of South Africa itself. Um, I interviewed the, um, the statistician general yesterday, uh, Padil Hotler, about uh, new municipal uh, delivery statistics. And the one thing he was at pains to point out in this interview, he used the word himself, because good municipal statistics have emerged with about 40 or 50 days to go before the election. And he turned around and he said to me, Mr. Mags, uh, we might be delivering uh, good results, but this is not indicative of state capture as far as the Office of the Statistician General is concerned. And that, to me, was, was very telling. We are concerned, we're worried about uh, state capture. The Guptas have taken over key decisions of the ruling party. They've bankrolled the re-election of President Zuma as president of the ANC in the 2012 uh, National Conference. We know that there are reports which are suggesting that uh, they have now moved on to Dubai. I don't buy it for a minute. I believe that they continue to influence and... Uh, uh, it influenced the discourse in this country to, to a great extent. So moving on from the Guptas uh, to the next big issue, and that is, uh, that is Julius Malema. I want to take you to the launch of the manifesto on the third uh, of uh, a couple of months ago. Where are we now? We are in May, June 
uh, just a few months ago, the launch in, uh, at, uh, in, in Soweto of, of, the, of the EFF's uh, manifesto. It took place in front of a capacity crowd of 56,000 people. I walked into that stadium to cover the story and you could feel red electricity running through your veins. Two weeks prior to that, I had been in Port Elizabeth at the, at the Mandela Stadium where the ruling party had been unable, in spite of promises uh, that they were going to do so, to fill the stadium. President Zuma himself uh, stood in front of, an, of, a, of a stadium that was about 35, 36% full. And that, to me, just illustrates the power and the importance of this, um, of this party. Um, Julius Malema has this astonishing ability to rouse people. I want to give you two examples of his political nous, of his, political, of his strategic political ability. During that manifesto speech, he spoke about two things. He was talking about wanting to halt the construction of bicycle lanes in Santon and in Cape Town. You might be thinking to yourself, what on earth was he talking about? The other issue he spoke about, he said under an EFF administration, he wanted to build houses where parents could be intimate with each other. Let's deconstruct that, everybody, for a moment. When he spoke about the bicycle lanes, he was attacking the priorities that city councils give to the rich at the expense of the poor. It was, in my opinion, a political masterstroke. Similarly, in the demand for parents to be intimate in their own houses, he was speaking about the appalling overcrowding in some areas and the chronic housing backlog that uh, exists in this country. I would suggest, ladies and gentlemen, that the economic freedom fighters are playing a very important role in this country. For the first time since the fall of apartheid, we have an alternative, a real alternative to the ANC within its own constituency. And that this is why this August the 3 election is so important. You might be asking yourself, well, what about the Democratic Alliance? I will get to the metros in just a moment. But Julius Malema himself saying, and I tend to agree with him, that there are only two parties that are really going to count in this election. One is the ANC, with all its difficulties, and the other is the EFF. There are many, in many respects, it would be my contention that the, uh, the, the, the Democratic Alliance has uh, reached its uh, ceiling. So let's talk a little bit, if we can, about the election on the uh, 3rd of August. And it really comes down to the metros itself. Um, let's talk about Gauteng first of all. I want to share some numbers with you. First of all, it's the biggest prize as far as this election is concerned. And it's expected to be hotly contested. The two big issues, the lack of service delivery, which continues to hurt the ruling party, and the other big issue that you know is the e-tolls issue. But let me run the numbers for you. In the 2014 election, uh, Joburg, uh, Joburg, the ANC in Joburg was down over 10% from 2009 to 52.3% from 62.35% in 2009. In the 2011 local election, it won 58.5% of the vote, 58.56% of the vote. The conventional wisdom is it's going to be close, 
But the sense is the ANC is still going to win the city. It has an enviable mayor in Park Tao who's doing an incredibly good job and also a charismatic leader of the province itself, David Makura. The general sense is, is that they will still marginally hold on to Johannesburg. The other big issue, or the other big city, is uh, the Tswani municipality, just north of where I, sp I speak to you this morning. It saw its area coverage grow in uh, between 2009 and uh, 2014. And the reason and, and the consequence of that, the, the byproduct of that, is it saw the ANC losing 10% of its votes. The ANC saw its rule slide below 50%, 49.31% in the 2014 general election, and uh, from 59.9% in 2009 uh, to 55.3% in the 2011 go local government election. The DA attaining 38.7%, the EFF 11.2% in the general election. Again, the conventional wisdom there is that while those numbers are altering the balance slightly, uh, the ANC is still going to win in, in, in Tswani. Uh, the Nelson Mandela Bay municipality, it's a hot property in the 2016 elections. The ANC winning a majority in the region, 48.8%, only 8% of the DA in the, uh, in, the, in, in, the, in the general election. The ANC has moved, as you know, to appoint uh, Danny Jordan, uh, as, as mayor, he is tainted with all sorts of, uh, of, of allegations against him, most notably the, uh, the, the FIFA World Cup. But the general sense is in, uh, in the Eastern Cape is that the Democratic Alliance is a 40% party. It's, it's reached its ceiling and uh, it's uh, not going to be enough uh, to topple the ANC in the, in the Eastern Cape. I'm not going to refer to Mpumalanga, the Northwest Province, the Free State, the Northern Cape, because all of them are shoe-ins for the ANC. But uh, KwaZulu-Natal is interesting. In the past uh, 72 hours, you'll be well aware that there has been a reshuffle in the province. It is deeply factionalized. Uh, you have an ongoing internecine war between the SACP and the ANC in the province. The fight for the heart, of the so uh, heart and soul of the party continues in that province. But again, the general sense is it's not going to be enough uh, to, uh, to topple the ANC in, in, in KwaZulu-Natal. So the overall picture, everybody, is diminished majority in the metros uh, for the ANC on the August the 3rd election. But I would suggest to you that you would be foolish if you were expecting any major upsets in that respect. Um, I am not going to have the temerity, everybody, to stand in front of you today uh, to talk about uh, ratings agencies because this is the world that you work in and it's the world that I report. Um, all I can say is that we're expecting a Fitch decision either uh, at close of uh, uh, a close of trade on the JSC today or early tomorrow morning. The general sense is that it will be a hold. But uh, after the Essen Poor rating, or Standard and Poor's rating decision at the weekend, um, I was able to do an interview with one of the uh, senior staff members at that organization, and four things came out uh, from that interview. One is that they are looking very carefully at our ability as a country to implement plans to promote growth. That is the most important thing. Don't worry about all the political uncertainty that I've been talking about. It's about implementation of real plans to promote growth. If you follow the discourse uh, from the finance minister, if you look at the statement that was put out today after a briefing between the finance minister and President Zuma yesterday, that is also top of their list. That's the one thing. The second thing is policy certainty. Uh, we have become a nation of policy flip-flops as far as uh, Standard & Poor's is concerned. Less inflammatory rhetoric. One of the slides I'll get to towards the end of this um, 
this discussion is the, the language of fire in South Africa. And uh, that tends to deflect people, and it has all sorts of negative consequences. Less inflammatory rhetoric is important, and also an election result, says Standard & Poor's, that is not radical. Read into that what you want, okay? The next thing, folks, uh, is corruption. It's the single biggest issue that uh, continues to prey on South Africa's minds. Let's go back to Nelson Mandela, that picture that I, put, uh, that I showed you right at the very beginning. He understood the vital importance of constitutional principles and accountability and rule of law in this country. The general sense, and I think there will be universal agreement here, is that we tend to have lost that. I want to refer to a couple of surveys very quickly. The first is Transparency International and its latest, uh, its latest discourse on South Africa. It's the Global uh, uh, Corruption Perception Index. And it shows that South Africa has dropped 34 places since 2001. 34 places since 2001. So corruption, the index, as we continue to drop, corruption has continued to rise. It's a huge problem. Uh, another survey that has just been put out is by the Human Sciences Research Council. It's called the South African Social Attitude Survey. And it shows that the biggest proportion, the preponderance, the largest proportion of people in this country think that tackling corruption should be a national priority. Uh, four years ago, 14% of South Africans, 14% of South Africans thought it should be a national priority. Uh, that has now gone up to 30% in five years. It is something that preys on our mind all the time. Uh, and Corruption Watch states that the problem starts with the president himself. Uh, and unless we get a clear indication of uh, what action is being taken by him and against him, the, the uh, perception of uh, corruption is, is, is going to stay. Moving on from corruption, the other big issue, as we look at the Bry Index, is uh, service delivery. And it's interesting, I interviewed the Premier of, uh, of Gauteng, David Makuro, about uh, two months ago, and I made a note of this particular remark he said. He says that... Uh, a lot of the uh, service delivery protests in this country, and this shocked me a little bit, um, are to blame on individuals with ambitions of becoming municipal councillors themselves. It was his contention that uh, the people, the disgruntled people who want to get onto that gravy train, uh, uh, were uh, behind the current wave of service delivery protests. Read into that what you want. But just in terms of the hard numbers, Gauteng and the Eastern Cape in the past couple of months have seen the most protests this year so far. The other issue that I have is the problem or the, 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 the descriptor of, of service delivery itself. It's, it's become all-encompassing. It's become a useful template on which to blame everything. I think it's misleading because uh, many public protests, um, if you mine down, if you actually get into the field, and I like to do this from time to time. Uh, you move in and you actually talk to people and you try to interrogate why they're actually protesting instead of saying, well, it's service delivery. In all my years of reporting in the field, when I have attended a service delivery protest and I've said to them, is this about service delivery? People look at me with a blank face. It's often about many other things, small micro issues that are just lumped into service delivery. Be very careful of that, of that descriptor. The labor movement, Kasatu, links all protests uh, to, to poverty. And from poverty, 
I think uh, is, is perhaps a better description. They are poverty protests. They're not service delivery protests. What is also worrying in the ramp up to the August 3 election is the protests have become more violent, a lot more violent. I don't need to, to uh, point you to the, uh, uh, the horrible images that we've seen from Vuani, for instance, uh, where schools have been burned down. I did an interview yesterday uh, with the education authorities that still contend that something in the region of six thousand pupils have not had six weeks of schooling simply because their schools have been burnt down. Service delivery protests have become, or protests, poverty protests have become a lot more violent. Uh, in uh, 2007, half of the protests turned violent. In 2014, 85% of all protests have turned violent. That, everybody, would worry me an enormous amount. This is the next issue that I'm concerned about. It's the language of fire. It's the rhetoric. And I am going to take the blame myself for a lot of that. Not me personally, but as a representative of the media. But we live in this fire and brimstone nation. Um, the, I, I want to take you back to January this year. Um, and I want to reference uh, a, a, an MP in Cape Town called Bongani Mkongi, who wrote in his Facebook profile, and, this, and I'm going to quote directly, join the ANC in Cape Town today at 1400 hours to burn down the billboard. This was the uh, Democratic Alliance billboard saying Zuma must fall. But in the heat of the battle, listen to the words, listen to the adjectives, listen to the descriptors, but in the heat of the battle, buildings and bodies are absolutely indistinguishable. And someone suggested to him that these two should be differentiated, and he said, and this, to, this scared the bejesus out of me, he said, building residents, people living in that building in Cape Town, should burn to death. We cannot, ladies and gentlemen, uh, live in a democratic society where we have this type of inflammatory language. The media itself is to blame. Mayor culpa, I put up my hand on this. I read the stuff every night, okay? But these are some of the words, these are some of the headlines that I have read in the past week. Political tensions flare up. Note the language, the language of fire, okay? Political tensions erupt, the language of fire. Sparks fly in Parliament after a heated debate. Rolls nicely off the tongue as a television news anchor, but it doesn't add, to, it doesn't add anything. Uh, we talk about protests spreading like wildfire. We are a tinderbox ready to explode. All of those, all of that language, I would contend to you, is, is particularly dangerous. We have to lower the language of fire in this country. Again, it's one of my concerns in that ramp up to the, uh, to the 2014 or the 2016 uh, um, uh, local government election. Um, I'm not going to spend too much time on education, folks. Our education system is in crisis. Uh, I interviewed the Minister of Basic Education, Anzi Motsecha, about four months ago, and this is what she said to me. Um, she said, 80% of schools in South Africa are dysfunctional. There's a study that was done by the department, by her department. Pupils in South Africa's wealthiest 25% of schools outperform students in the remaining 75% of schools. You cannot have a ratio like that and expect to, expect to proceed. The percentage of pupils that are functionally illiterate, functionally illiterate in South Africa, ranges from 25.6% to 43.3%. You can interpret those numbers yourself. 
8.4% of grade 6 pupils in South Africa's wealthiest 25% uh, of schools, read into that, private schools are considered functionally innumerate. The rest of them are getting ahead with maths and science. We have a huge problem in this country as far as education is concerned. And uh, that, to me, is a single bedrock on which election politics should be, uh, should be based. We should be voting to change the education dynamic in this country. Jobs, official stats, and these were put out uh, a couple of weeks ago, 15.7 million South Africans are actually working. In other words, people sitting in this room today, 5.7 million don't. Unemployment rate officially is 27.7%. We know that's a lie, okay, because it's closer to about 47% because of what it doesn't take into account is the people who have simply given up, the people who say, I have no hope. And... Um, one expert uh, that I interviewed a couple of weeks ago said that there are two approaches uh, in short-termism in terms of building South Africa's capacity in ramping up uh, employment. The first is labor-intensive work. As disparaging, as insulting as that might sound, okay, South Africa's new policy approach should look and emphasize the need towards labor-intensive production. The more people we actually get onto the road, uh, get into the road, into the streets, into the factories, working hard uh, is going to put money into people's pockets and it's going to improve the economy in that respect. Past growth strategies often favor capital rather than labor-intensive investment. It would be my contention and my guess that we try to pursue that with a little bit more vigor. And the other issue is local enterprise development, promotion of community-based enterprises and micro and small business development. Let me give you a very good example. I was blown away yesterday. Uh, I, I do a program on, 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 on the, the new station that I work at which focuses on entrepreneurship and media. And I interviewed two young 24-year-old people. They're experts in something called geomatics. Um, if you don't know, I, I'm still struggling to come up with a, uh, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm a middle-aged man now, I, and when I asked what geomatics was, they told me, and I still don't understand. But what they have done is that they have worked out an algorithm where they can look at a scan of a, of a fetus in a mother's womb, and they can 3D print the fetus uh, and show the parent what the child is going to look like before the child is even born. Some might say it's a little creepy. I, I held one of these little creepy 3D dolls. It was a little creepy. But the fact is, it's a great idea. It was developed in South Africa, and it, is, it has commercial application. As I say, they are in their mid-20s. They are unable to find funding. They are unable to find help in this particular respect. What have they done? They've gone offshore. They've gone to a company, I think it was in Belgium. They had a contact there. And people have seen the potential. And this is a micro or small enterprise development. They've been given the leg up. My final question to them is, are you going to stay in South Africa? No, they said. We're going to follow the money. That's the story of the 3D baby. Let's talk a little bit about that. Folks, we are singularly unhappy. Every single person in this room, to a greater or lesser extent, before the August 3rd election, is unhappy. Let's look at the happiness index, okay? Life in post-apartheid South Africa is not a happy one. Out of 157 countries polled in a happiness index, we now sit 
at 116. We were in the top quartile a couple of years ago. Singularly, we're becoming unhappier all the time. We are sadder than our immediate neighbors, Namibia and Zambia. We are sadder than Iraq. We are sadder than Libya. We are miserable, sad people, everybody. Okay? So what is it translated into? Our eating and drinking habits. Okay? You have comfort eaters growing in this country. Okay? More than half of what we buy these days with our disposable income is food and drink. Just go to a bottle store on a Friday night when we've come to the end of a hellish week. I will see some of you there, no doubt. Okay? <laughs> we are medicating more to deal with the unhappiness. The sale of medicines year on year has grown, or, or, or sale of antidepressants, medicines, has grown 15% in the past 12 months. Talking to you guys, you're all self-medicating. I haven't got there yet, okay? Political analyst Dr. Somododo Fekeni, I interviewed him two days ago. He says, disenchantment, maladministration, poverty, inequality, just some of the reasons why we feature in the bottom half of that listing. A post-liberation country, 20, 22 years ago, there were hopes for a better life. There were hopes for a utopian life. And Dr. Fekeni, who's one of the top commentators, political commentators in this country, simply says to me, South Africa hasn't dealt honestly with its burdens of the past. The state of the economy weighs heavily on our minds. We're an unhappy nation, everybody. Let me refer to a good news story, if I can. Um, she is the most astonishing person, is she not? Um, if you haven't attended a talk uh, with, uh, with Tuli Madonsela at some point before her term of office ends, before she starts writing her what I assume is going to be a fascinating autobiography, get to, get to hear her talk, because she's really good. She speaks in whispering tones. She's always immaculately dressed. And when she walks into a room, people sit up and they listen to what she's saying, unlike some of you who are listening to me today. Okay? She's taken on some of South Africa's most powerful politicians, and she's won. I asked her a couple of questions in a recent interview. And... Uh, First of all, um, what needed the most urgent attention in this country? And these, this was her answer. Procurement-related corruption is the single biggest problem in this country. Retail corruption, she contended, needed to be given urgent attention. The things that foster a culture of corruption, a question I put to her. What were they? First of all, competency deficit in supply chain management a lack of respect and rules for those in authority, and perhaps the most important and the most telling was a lack of consequence for wrongdoing. The public protector is due to be reappointed, or a new public protector will be appointed uh, towards the end of this year. There is a process as far as that is concerned. Go and look it up and get involved in that public discourse, because the public protector... Is a, is, a, is a bastion, an important bastion in this country. So, at the end of it, as we approach this election, the question many South Africans ask and, um, is, should I stay or should I go? Now, the first, que the first question that I have asked experts in this field as an interrogator of the idea is, is this a black or white thing? 
and it's absolutely not. It is a concern, it is a worry that runs the swathe of all South Africans, of all persuasions, of all age, of all gender. Should I stay or should I go? Uh, the global market research company Sinovate, uh, in a survey that was put out about six weeks ago, said 20% of South Africans are definitely planning on emigrating or seriously considering it. That figures up about 5% from uh, last year. So there is some concern in, in that respect. Uh, there is a bit of good news on that, though, is that uh, just under 50% say they have no intention of leaving at all, and they're in for the long haul. I hope that, uh, along with me, you are part of that, of that 47%. But I want to end with this, folks, because I think I'm coming to the end of my time, and I do have, a, do have a radio program that I need to go and present. I want to leave you with six things as to why I think you should stay in this country. Um, first of all, there's nowhere in the world that you can mix so many languages up in one sentence and people will still understand what the hell you're saying. Okay? There is absolutely no country in the world where you can joke about having three finance ministers in four days. If you're one of that 20% that is on their way to OR Tambo tonight on an Emirates flight out of here, I would contend, and this brings me back to the meat theme that I started with, uh, you will miss Biltong and Burevors. If you are vegan or vegetarian, that comment was not aimed at you, but I don't really care anyway, all right? Um, if you leave South Africa and you settle elsewhere, you'll have to end up pumping your own petrol. Um, we can make a joke of anything in this country, from load shedding to President Zuma. And um, if you go shopping in any other country, um, no one is going to come and fetch your trolley uh, once you've parked it next to your car. In Europe and in Australia and in many other countries, you're going to have to take care of that yourself. I would say one final thing to you, ladies and gentlemen. This is the most important election, I think, that this country has faced since 1994. Um, I am assuming, as responsible uh, South African citizens, uh, you have all voted um, or you have all registered. I would urge you uh, to go and exercise your right to vote. Thank you very much indeed. Thanks, Jeremy. Um, are there any questions for Jeremy? Oh, sweet Jesus. Here we go. All right. Okay. Let's be nice, eh? Okay. Hi, Jeremy. Thanks for that uh, chat. Um, just on having three finance ministers in four days. Do you think we're over the hill in terms of the relationship between Pravin Gordon and President Zuma, or do you think more is going to come out there? That's the most, it's, I, think it's, I think it's the question that everybody is asking. Uh, yesterday, in fact, this is very current and very contemporary. Yesterday, uh, there was a day-long briefing session uh, from the Treasury and President Zuma, and the statement that was issued overnight is that they are, it's a love fest, uh, that, they have that they have never liked each other more that they are brothers in arms, that they're working in concordance uh, to fix things in, in the economy. Um, I think it's bullshit, okay, to be quite honest with you. I think there is more to come, but I think that there is, uh, I think there is a general pragmatism uh, as far as uh, the reality of the economy is concerned. I think the power balance uh, exists uh, and is centered in the Treasury at the moment. I think that uh, Pravin Gordon is the one person that is holding us... Uh, uh, in abeyance from, from junk status and whatever comes beyond junk status. You know more about that than I.
Um, I think that they have no uh, I think that they have no choice but to work together. Is there more to come? I think there is plenty more to come. I don't think the SARS rogue unit story has gone away, not for one moment. I think that that's going to come back and bite. But at the moment, as parties suddenly realise, uh, or as government suddenly realises the, the importance of, uh, of some form of, of stability and cohesion and cooperation, I think that that particular issue is in abeyance for the moment. But... Um, after August the 3rd, ladies and gentlemen, I, I think that uh, Pandora's box is just going to open again. And I, for one, as uh, someone who reports current affairs, cannot wait, because it gives me a fresh headline every night. Okay. Yeah. I was wondering how you feel about the SABC not reporting on the burning of, well, not showing the images of the burning of, of the building. And what do you think I feel? It's outrageous, okay? Um, and what, what, what breaks me about this is, is that I, I hosted a, a panel discussion two days ago with the chief operating officer of the SABC, a leading media commentator and a leading media lawyer. And what concerns me more than anything else is the disconnect. It's not the decision itself, which is outrageous and goes against every tenet of journalism in this country. Um, it's this adherence to the sunshine journalism that the state broadcaster or the public broadcaster, call it what you want, is trying to practice. It's how South Africans are losing out in this debate. But what concerns me the most is people, people within the SABC itself not actually understanding the consequence of a decision like that. Um, it, it, would, it would concern me greatly. I would also say to you, ma'am, that um, there are other um, television news channels that you might want to visit at some point. Um, Channel 403, for instance. What can I say? Okay. Folks, I'm going to take one more if, if there is. Otherwise, I'm going to love you and leave you because I, I literally I, I host a current affairs radio show on 98.7, great radio station. And um, I have a producer who, while I've been talking to you, has texted me three times uh, with, with story ideas. Uh, and she will brain me if I don't get there. So um, I'm going to hijack mm. the last question. Yeah, I mean, it came through the, the app. So it asks, what does the Trump victory mean to SA? Who asked that question? By the way? <laughs> is, this a, is, it, is, it, is it the is it the man with the wavy is it the wavy blonde hair? I mean, the, what is the Trump victory? I'm, I'm assuming you're, you're you're talking about what does the Trump uh, nomination as the Republican uh, as the Republican contender mean for South Africa? Uh, Folks, I don't think the man has a coherent foreign policy in his head, to be quite honest with you. Um, I interviewed, um, I was speaking to our, our Washington correspondent last night, and um, I, I put a similar question to him, and I, I used a, a, a much touted phrase in journalism. I said, Simon, what is the conventional wisdom as far as, uh, as, as this particular issue pertaining to Donald Trump was? And he came back to me and he said, Jeremy, uh, those words, conventional wisdom, no longer exist in American politics. Uh, he says, no one knows. Everything is up in the air. The sense that I'm getting is that some sense will prevail. Um, I, I believe, and again, challenge me if you want to, and I'm not basing this on anything else apart from you know, what I read, is that um, you will have the first female uh, president in the White House come November and the first male first lady. And um, I think I tend to think that I think tend to think that Donald Trump has divided uh, the Republican Party to the point where uh, it might even split. And I think that uh, I think that you know, as they say in music, I think 
I tend to think he's a one-hit wonder. But, uh, you know, I could be standing at your conference in, your conference in Mauritius in, uh, <laughs> in, uh, in two years' time, and, you know, we could be talking about the havoc that President Trump has, has, has wrought. I, I don't know, to be quite honest with you. I wish I did. Okay. Thank you very much. Okay, nice meeting you all. Thanks very much.